move on to the next episode we're going to get people pissed off at us about? No, I, I got a couple more things to say about these people who don't like us, Dana. They can go fuck themselves <laughs> with a red hot fuck poker. <laughs> Welcome to Damn It, Jim, the podcast. A fascinating and fun exploration of Star Trek, the original series, hosted by Dan Calzaretta and Dana Smith. This week, we're discussing Season 2, Episode 8, I Mud. Dan, last week's episode, Catspaw, that did not seem to be on everyone's best list. Still, we had some people defending or being angry about our comments. So uh, should we jump in and, and discuss some of those comments? Yeah. And, you know, I, I need to make it clear. I, I didn't think it was the worst episode ever. I just thought there were some really dumb parts of it. So uh, start off with Susie Rose said, one of my favorites, uh, Stuart Roloff said, awful episode among several others that I won't watch. <laughs> wow, that's that's pretty intense there. Richard Riccio said, I really like this episode. It's a good Halloween episode. And Martin Stahl said, when looking at the pictures, perhaps Chekhov's wig was the spell. <laughs> <laughs> I got to agree with that. So Kip Page said, it was a very interesting, thought-provoking episode. So our good friend Olivia said that, uh, sent us a long message and she apologized for uh, taking up so much time, but... Uh, uh, I'll read parts of this message. Uh, said, I watched this episode for the first time five years ago and haven't touched it since. It was that bad. I think it was a giant, it was the giant cat that got me. She said, I'm sick and tired of seeing all the other members of the cast get possessed and try to get at Kirk and Spock. Bones and Scotty deserve better plot lines instead of all the Schmidt. There's the Schmitter again. And finally, Kirk and Spock's exchange about bad poetry and useful comments was the best part of the entire episode. As always, keep up the amazing work, and I look forward to next week. So thanks again, Olivia. Yeah, thanks, Olivia. That was good. Lindsay Laborn uh, says, any episode of TOS is better than all the current stuff on TV. I'd have to agree with you there. Dana, we also heard from Anthony Sinclair, who's emailed us before. He said, good work on getting back on track with last week's review of Cat's Paw and great detective work on finding out about the actor who played Crewman Jackson. His epic fall off the transporter platform like a ton of bricks never fails to amaze me. Trivia note, he says, the strange noises made by Sylvia and Karab when they are in their true physical forms are actually those made by baby alligators. Ah, so that's pretty interesting. Thanks. Thanks for that, Anthony. We appreciate it. Last comment we're going to read for tonight is uh, from Robert Hutchison, who's commented on our show before. He said, the main awful thing about the podcast is the two oddballs talking. And he has in parents, I don't use bad words in public. Now, wait, Dana, I could see how he might be calling you an oddball, but I'm not sure how he gets away with calling me an oddball. Yeah, well, we're in this together, Dan. And it was plural, right? Yeah, so he said he doesn't use bad words in public. I, I assume he means like on Facebook, right? Yeah. Well, what bad word do you think? Like, just think of the universe of bad words. And you could only choose, you can only choose one or one phrase that he would have used to describe us. What would it have been, do you think? Shitheads. Shitheads, okay. That's one of my favorites. So. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. I've thought about this for a long time. The one that just rises to the top is dickwads. <laughs> 
Wow. Yeah. What does that even mean? I don't know. It just sounds like something that this guy would have called us, you dickwads. Yeah. Okay. I mean, both of those. We each get to choose one, you know, because we're both <laughs> oddballs, Dana. So on my personal Facebook page, Dana, which is set to private, so only my friends can see it, I recounted that comment that he had made, and I asked, are we indeed oddballs? I got some interesting responses to that. Uh, one of my friends, Randy, said, space balls, maybe. <laughs> Linda commented, the listener sounds like a sphincter. <laughs> uh, she's very colorful in her language, usually. Finally, one of our uh, very good friends, Trudy, said, I have it on good authority that your balls are not odd, but are in fact superior. Oh, God, wait, it says, are you oddballs, not do you have oddballs? Merciful heavens. <laughs> oh, no, only Trudy. Yeah. Only Trudy. <laughs> so we got some funny comments based on Robert's comments. So Robert, thank you very much for listening. So with that, should we uh, move on to the next episode we're going to get people pissed off at us about? No, I, I got a couple more things to say about these people who don't like us, Dana. They can go f*** themselves <laughs> with a red hot f*** poker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was hoping if I talked long enough that uh, you would say, let's just get on with the show. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I'm just joking about that. I know. We have fun, and that's what it's all about, as far as I'm concerned. So, Dana, I think it's about time we move on to the episode. It's been so long, I almost forgot which episode we're doing. It's I Oddball. I, sorry. <laughs> it's I Mud. Oh, yeah. So we start off the show with Spock and Dr. McCoy walking through the hallways of the Enterprise, and they pass crewman Norman. McCoy stops and points out that Norman is odd and unemotional. Wait, did he call him an oddball? I think so. Odd, isn't that short for oddball? I think it is, yeah. Mm -hmm. So Spock says he hasn't noticed, saying Norman's only been on board for 72 hours. McCoy goes on saying that Norman has avoided two appointments with him. And Spock says, That's not at all surprising, Doctor. He's probably terrified of your beads and rattles. Yeah, I would be. I have a question for you, Dana. How does someone get on the ship, like get assigned to the ship? How do they get there? Do they have to go to a star base or, you know what I'm saying? Well, how do they get new personnel? Yeah, I think they stop at the, uh, a star base or, you know, the like deep space station. Okay, so this guy Norman would have had to infiltrate one of those, would have had to somehow get his Starfleet record embedded in some computer someplace. Now, I love this episode, but how did he pull this off, Dana, really? It's a show, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, it's not real? This isn't a documentary, Dana? Here's my problem, Dana. I need to not like nitpick the show so much. Well, I mean, some of the nitpicking is good, but see, you've just sidetracked us for like five minutes because I wasn't expecting you to go off on this. It's funny. I can usually, when I'm watching the show and stuff, I'm, I can now say like, oh, this is something Dan's going to pick up on <laughs> or Dan's going to have lots of comments on this. And I kind of mentally prepare myself. <laughs> <laughs> for like the nonsense that will follow. <laughs> <laughs> Just try to imagine all the comments you're going to make and how I can respond or how I can get you back on track. So I need to be less predictable. And even still, you are unpredictable, no matter how hard I try. All right. Speaking of getting back on track, maybe we should get back on track because <laughs> we're like one minute into the actual show at this point. So we see Norman go into auxiliary control where he knocks out a crewman with a very weak karate chop, by the way. Yeah. I'm not being nitpicky. I'm just, you know, no pointing out. <laughs> <laughs> it was very weak. Norman goes over and flips a bunch of switches on one control panel, and then the shipboard lights up with an overload danger 
sign. Did you notice when he was flipping those switches, he's just like flipping them totally willy nilly. Yeah. It, and a lot of them were just like back and forth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Turn it right, turn it back left, turn it right, turn it back left. Apparently it doesn't take much to take over the Enterprise. Wow. You are right about that. I mean, how many times have we seen the Enterprise taken over? It's happened, what, at least four times? Anyway, it's happened a lot. <laughs> so you're right. It's very easy. So we go to the bridge and Sulu reports a change in course that he cannot correct. Kirk tries to contact auxiliary control, but no one answers. He sends security to auxiliary control and Ensign Rowe reports that the controls are unworkable. By unworkable, to me, that means like you can't use them at all. Can't flip switches like Norman did. You mean like they're broken? Yeah. Wait a second. So you're, <laughs> you're so you're complaining about this and me complaining about Norman getting on the ship was like Which was like a five minute diatribe. It was just the <laughs> like, mine was just a question. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're right. So Row reports there's Row Row. I sound like I sound like Scooby Doo. God, I hate Scooby Doo. You know who I really hate though? Scrappy Doo. I'm not a fan of Scrappy Doo, but I love Scooby. How can you not love Scooby Doo? No, never liked it. Just I did not like Scooby Doo. What was going on inside that van, Dana? So there's no sign of an intruder. Kirk calls emergency manual monitor to override the auxiliary control, but no one answers there. And so we see Normans leaving the room. It's like overlooking the engine room. And and Scotty goes to stop Norman, and Norman throws him aside. Then we get a stunt man who looks nothing like Norman beating the crap out of everyone in engineering. I mean, this guy had like was losing his hair. I know. <laughs> and he was shorter by probably six inches. <laughs> yeah. Sulu reports that they are picking up warp speed. Then Norman comes on the bridge just as Kirk is getting ready to get on the turbo left. And Norman grabs him by the arm and says, I'm in total control of your ship. Any attempt to alter course will destroy the ship. He opens up a panel in his abdominal region, revealing himself to be an android. But I've got another question for you. Okay. I'm ready for it. We have the bridge which is where all the controls are to pilot the ship. Mm -hmm. And then we have auxiliary control, which we've seen now twice in the last three weeks. Yes. You can run the ship from auxiliary control. Which makes sense, right? Yeah, you got a, a redundant system, backup. Yeah. What is emergency manual monitor? Is that the backup to the backup to the backup? Dana, it's just a television show. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought the same thing when I saw that. And the name, one thing, the name is dumb. And then its location, it just happens to be in what looks like essentially a closet sized space that happens to overlook the engine room, you know, and there's just somebody sitting up there all the time. It, it didn't make much sense. Yeah. Yeah. Norman says in four solar days, they will reach their destination. When they do reach the planet, Norman says, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Uhura, and Chekhov must all beam down or he will destroy the engines. The group beams down. There's twin female guards there in front of the door. And when they go through the doorway, they find Harry Mudd drinking from a goblet, looking like some kind of royalty. He says that he should be called Mudd the First. <laughs> I thought this was a great scene, actually, just when they go through and they just see him for the first time. Mud says you might as well start enjoying this place. It's really quite nice. 
and you're all going to be here probably for the rest of your lives. So Mud waves his hand and more of the attractive twins show up and he says he has over 500 of them. Beauty, wherever he looks. So Kirk asks how Mud got out of jail and Mud says after his escape, he had been employing himself by reselling patents illegally. He was caught selling a Vulcan fuel synthesizer to the Denebians. Spock says the penalty on Deneb 5 for fraud is death by electrocution, death by gas, death by phaser, death by hanging. The key word in your entire peroration, Mr. Spark, was death. That was a pretty funny line by Harry Mudd, I thought. By the way, love this character. Love Harry Mudd. So Mudd explains he was able to get a ship, and Kirk says stole, and get away despite being shot at, which knocked out his navigation. After drifting aimlessly for a while, he found himself on this planet, a planet of over 200,000 happy androids, all of whom are there to serve his every whim. Yeah, but he is kind of looking at the women though, right? I mean, as though every whim meant something pretty lecherous. What else would you expect from the guy that was a space pimp before? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Spock says, I fail to see the problem. And Mud says, they won't let me go. They want to study me. They want to learn about human beings. And they want more human beings to study. So I brought them a prime example, a starship captain. He says, and now I can get back to civilization. And Kirk says, not so fast. Mud says, you misunderstand me. I'm not asking. I'm telling you, you have no choice. And then he sends the crew to their quarters. The Koi spots uh, black glass on one of the walls and he asks what that is, Mud introduces it as Stella, his wife. He turns on the light and we see this kind of hard-looking woman with a pinched face. He says, You see, gentlemen, behind every great man there is a woman urging him on. And so it was with my Stella. She urged me on into outer space. Uh, not that she meant to, but with her continual, eternal, confounded nagging. I think of her constantly, and every time I do, I go further out into space. And he calls her name, and she starts speaking, criticizing him and yelling at him. And he yells, shut up, and she stops. And Mud laughs, almost like, just like giddy. And he seems quite pleased with himself. I thought that was pretty funny, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's, they, and they do a nice job of setting that whole thing up. Yeah. So the androids take Kirk and the crew to their quarters. Kirk asks Norman who created him. Norman says, the makers created us. They came from the galaxy of Andromeda. Spock asks, who do you serve now? And the androids respond in unison, we serve Harry Mudd. He has given us purpose again. It is necessary to have purpose. After the androids leave, Chekhov says, we are in trouble. <laughs> wow, that was bad. <laughs> that one definitely was Dracula. Welcome. We are in trouble. <laughs> so Chekhov says, I think we're in a lot of trouble. That's a great help, Mr. Chekhov Bones. Well, I think Mr. Chekhov's right. We are in a lot of trouble. Spock, and if you say we're in a lot of trouble, we are. Then he goes on to explain that there must be a central unit that controls the androids. So Kirk dispatches the crew to find out what they can and find that central control for the androids. So next we see Kirk and Uhura with Mud and the Alice twins. That's the original twins that we saw. And the androids tell Uhura that androids have never died. They're designed to live 500,000 years. Then they say they can implant a human brain in an android 
android body. And Mud leans into Uhura and says, immortality and eternal beauty. And Uhura seems quite fascinated by this concept. Yeah, once again, the female is written in this way that all a woman would care about is beauty and immortality. Interestingly, though, Dana, none of the androids, and they were 200,000, now we didn't see all of them, but we saw by the end of the episode, we see quite a few of the series of androids. They're all white. There are no androids of color in that episode, which I just kind of found interesting, but I guess for the time, not surprising. Yeah, no, I did notice that. So later, Spock is telling Kirk that he just had a fascinating conversation with Nolan. He said Nolan? I listened to this three or four times. I turned up the volume so loud. My wife asked me what was wrong if I had suddenly gone deaf. And he says, Nolan. I wonder why they didn't fix that. Then one of the Alice's brings Scotty around, leading him by the hand. And she says, here's the last one, my Lord. And she kind of tosses him into the room against Scotty's will. And Scotty's like kind of thrown. And Scotty says, Harry Mud. Oh, you bogus flat, you. You're the cause of all this, are you? Scotty, you were ordered to stay aboard. Aye, sir. And I stayed until that female gargantua threw me into the transporter beams. <laughs> and Kirk asked Mud, what did she mean by the last one? And Mud says... Didn't I tell you, Kirk? I've beamed a few dozen androids up to your ship and sent your crew down here. And Kirk gets kind of enraged and pushes Mud up against the wall with his hand on his throat. He says, you can't beam an entire crew of a spaceship down. Someone has to fly it. Mud says, the androids are fast learners and they are now in control of your ship and there's nothing you can do about it. Now, when he had his hand around Mud's throat, I mean, he really had it pushed into the flesh on his throat. It, it looked like to me. Yeah. There's a way to do that. You mean and not hurt somebody or there's like an acting way to do it, you're saying? Yeah. Basically, you let the uh, the person that you're pushing against push against you. So when you were doing acting, did you have to do any of this stuff, like figure out how to do fight scenes or anything? Uh, a little bit. But uh, basically, it's like if I'm choking you, the idea is that you're the one who's applying the pressure and not me. Got it. Well, that makes sense, right? Because you wouldn't want to actually hurt somebody. Well, you might. I don't, it depends on who your acting partner is. <laughs> like Scotty really would have liked to have destroyed Kirk a few times, I'm sure. Harry says, I'll have one of the fastest ships in the fleet. Think about that. Harry Mudd in charge of your ship with a crew of lovelies. Kirk says, I'll try not to. This episode was funny. I mean, there was some good humorous writing in this one. Yeah, I thought they did a great job of playing off of one another like that. Spock comments that Mud might get away with it. He says the androids are totally loyal to Mud. More importantly, the android population can supply anything a human could want in unlimited quantity. So uh, Kirk says, that's what worries me. How will my crew respond in a world where they can have anything they want simply by asking for it? Almost on cue, we see Chekhov sitting on Mud's throne. Two Alice's come up and said, do you desire something, Lord? Chekhov gets a funny look on his face and he says, I can't believe this and says, what a shame you're not real. And they say, we are real. Wait, hold on. I, I'm I'm surprised you didn't do that in the try to do that in the Chekhov accent. I failed at it miserably the first time, so I've I've given up on it for tonight. I cannot believe you're not real. That wasn't very good either. Yeah, you're kind of like a mix of the uh, Lucky Charms uh, <laughs> <laughs> leprechaun and. I cannot believe that's not real. <laughs> Uh, we didn't read the comments about the guy that didn't understand why we were talking about Lucky Charms for <laughs> five minutes in the episode. <laughs> Another happy customer, Dana. <laughs> 
So they say they are real, and Chekhov says, Harry Mudd programmed you? Yes, my lord. That unprincipled, evil-minded, lecherous kulak Harry Mudd programmed you? Yes, my lord. This place is even better than Leningrad. Dana, once again, Chekhov has given a bunch of the funny lines in this episode, and as a still a relatively new character, they have consciously given him this almost comical or comic relief role. So next we see Scotty in an engineering lab, I'm guessing. Uh, he seems quite astonished as Norman explains that they can produce anything here, or you can produce it yourself for your own pleasure. <laughs> What are they making in that science lab, Dana? I know what I'd be making, but... <laughs> well, what? What would you be making? Sorry, you got. You cannot just throw that out there and then just leave it. You got to explain. I would be, I hate to say it, would be more like Harry Mudd and designing women <laughs> to my personal specifications. Yeah, in that lab, I think it'd be cool to design some type of, uh, I don't know, I don't know, actually, now I think about it. Like a go-kart or something? You could race around there in go-karts? Yeah, design like a go-kart, but it'd have to be like... Like a flying go-kart. It couldn't be like one that had wheels. Or like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang could do both. Oh, it could do both. That would be good. That That's a good movie, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. You know, you, you'd think it was more like a kid's movie. It was scary for kids. Yeah, it was kind of scary for kids, yeah. The Kid Catcher. Oh, the Kid Catcher, yes. Then you had Goldfinger as the king. Remember, Benny Hill was the toy maker. Yeah. That's a good movie. I need to watch that again. We used to make up words to the song. Instead of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, it was something that sounded like Chitty. Schmitty Schmitty Bang Bang. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, I see a Star Trek episode in our future. (laughs) (laughs) Schmitty, schmitty, bang, bang. (laughs) What would be the plot of that episode? Schmitty, schmitty, bang, bang takes on the Enterprise. So you think Schmitty would be the villain? Or no, it could come to the rescue of the Enterprise. That's the plot twist right there. You know, Dick Van Dyke's still alive, 97 years old. That's amazing, isn't it? He says the best thing to do is to keep active. And he still has really white hair. I mean, he's got full head of hair. Yeah. Unlike either of us. He's married to a woman that's like 30, 40, 50 years younger than him or something. Yeah. (laughs) That's his pet nickname for her, Chitty Chitty. Chitty Chitty, (laughs) bang, bang. (laughs) That's how he stays active. So why are we discussing Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Because you brought it up this time. <laughs> no, yeah. but you went on and on about that's your favorite movie and all this stuff. Well, it's not my favorite movie, no. I never said that. Go back. <laughs> listen to the tape. Go back. Listen to it. Listen to it once is going to be enough. I mean, let's do it more than once. Yeah. It was because of the whole go-kart thing. That's what it was. Anyway, yeah, moving on. So Kirk walks in on his crew all seeming pretty happy in their quarters. Kirk says, birds in a gilded cage. How do we get out of here? And Chekhov replies, it is a very nice gilded cage. That's still Dracula, man. <laughs> let me try that again. It is a very nice gilded cage. That was better, yeah. And let, let me try. Let me try. It is a very nice gilded cage. That was better. So we see Harry Mudd with uh, several androids, and he looks like he's doing an inspection. Kirk comes in with Spock and Alice, and Kirk says he has some questions. Mudd says he doesn't have time to answer them. His bags are all packed, and the androids will take the Enterprise out of orbit in 24 hours. And he goes over to Alice number two and asks her to get his bags up to the ship. All the 
android say, no, Lord Mud, and Mud is shocked. Norman explains, we can no longer take your orders. Our makers were wise. We were programmed to serve. Harry Mud is flawed. Your species is self-destructive. You need our help. Norman says, we will not harm you, but we will take your starship and you will remain here on this planet. Norman goes on, we cannot allow any race that is this greedy and corruptible as you are to have free run of the galaxy. Spock asks, how will you accomplish this? And Norman says, we will serve them until they become dependent upon us. We shall take care of them. I found that whole, we will control them by serving them really interesting. Do you ever see that movie Wally? Yeah. To me, it seems like where we're headed. People floating around on lounge chairs, drinking and eating and being severely overweight, too lazy to do anything for themselves. God, that sounds great. I'd sign up for that in a second. So we cut to later as Kirk addresses the crew and Mud is there as well. Spock says the system that controls the androids does not seem capable of managing all of them. He says there are multiple Alices, Trudys, Maisies, Annabelles, but only one Norman. To function as they do, they must be linked to each android mind, a mass brain linked to a central locus. Kirk hypothesizes that they must use wild, insane, irrational, illogic. That sounds like a perfect description of our show. <laughs> Mud asks, what the hell are you talking about? Spock says, a sound and possibly our only opportunity. Mud seems to think they're crazy and tells Spock, you may be a wonderful science officer, but believe me, you couldn't sell fake patents to your mother. Spock replies, I fail to understand why I should care to induce my mother to purchase falsified patents. This show really had good humorous writing in it. And the other thing, something can be written funny, but unless the actors can carry it off with timing, oh yeah, it's just not going to work. In fact, I, I know nothing about acting, Dana. Nothing. But it seems to me that humor might be one of the hardest things to pull off. The timing has to be so good. So Kirk says to Mud, we're going to need your help. Mud asks, what can he do to help? And Kirk says, nothing, just go to sleep. And McCoy comes up with a hypo and gives him an injection and knocks him out. He's got that hypo a lot, Dana. But in some instances where he's really needed the hypo, he hasn't had it. So I just don't understand. Does he not carry it all the time or what's the issue there? Yeah, sometimes he's probably used it up already on some other people. Yeah, and in the 23rd century, they would call that doing a Bill Cosby. It's gotten into the lexicon in the 23rd century. (laughs) It's part of the lingo. No one even knows in the 23rd century who Bill Cosby is. They're just like, we don't know. That's like saying flip your wig now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We all know what it means, but no one knows where it came from. Can we get sued for that? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. So So Kirk calls for an android. Alice shows up and Kirk says, we have a medical problem with your ex-lord, Harry Mudd. Alice says, he is human. You must treat him. Kirk says, no, we need some of the devices from the Enterprise. So she goes to see him and McCoy says he's dying. And you hear all of a sudden says, no, it's a trick. Goes on to say, I want to have an android bond. I want to live forever. And Kirk is just like beside himself. And Alice says, your request is denied. And Alice leaves and Kirk looks like he's going to go and 
strangle Uhura. And then he goes to her and grabs her by the arms and says, you were beautiful. Great work. Scotty says the androids were expecting an attempt. Now we've made it. Now what? So it was all a setup, wasn't it? Yeah. Next thing we see is Kirk sitting on the uh, on Harry Mudd's throne and uh, Kirk calls for an android. Two Alice's show up and he asks them to pay attention. The doors open across the room. Scotty and McCoy come in acting like they're playing instruments. Chekhov and Uhura come in dancing together and Kirk comments that they are happy to be in captivity. The Alice's are confused and their badges start flashing. Everyone stops and Chekhov thanks Uhura for the dance and she strikes him. And the Alice's ask, why did she strike him? And Kirk says, because she likes him. This causes more problems for the Alice's. Kirk tells Chekhov to stand absolutely still and Chekhov starts doing some Russian dance. <laughs> I know, that was kind of funny. And Kirk says, that's much better. And Alice's say, that's illogical. And he says, your statement is illogical. And that sends Alice's into comas. Right, don't they just kind of tilt their heads and their eyes close? Yep. Next we see Spock in the engineering lab with two Alice's. And he studies one and tries to do the Vulcan nerve pinch, but it has no effect. He then goes to the other Alice and says, I love you. However, he turns to Alice number 210 and says, I hate you. And she says, that is illogical. I'm exactly identical to Alice 27. Spock says, yes, that's why I hate you, because you are identical. Their badges start flashing, then go white, and the women appear to be unconscious. Same thing that happened to the other Alice's. So Spock joins Kirk, Scotty, McCoy, and Mud, and he says he was successful. Kirk suggests they go after Norman now. He says Norman should be in a bind by what they've created and they should be able to immobilize the whole group. So they enter the control center, and Kirk goes to Norman, and he says to Norman, I want you to surrender. Norman says, that is illogical. We are invulnerable to attack. And Kirk says, we are stronger. So Dana, this is all meant to confuse the androids, right? Yes. And the Alice's in the room, their badges are flashing like crazy, and Norman turns to Spock and says, please explain. Spock says, logic is a little tweeting bird chirping in a meadow. Logic is a wreath of pretty flowers that smell bad. Are you sure your circuits are registering correctly? Your ears are green. And that kind of throws Norman off. Yeah. Scotty steps forward with a wailing cry. He says, I'm tired of happiness and pleasure. Kill me. The team points a finger at him and makes phaser sounds. Scotty drops to the floor. McCoy goes over to him and says, he's dead. Norman says, you cannot have killed him. You had no weapons. Kirk turns to Spock and says, it's time for for the explosive. And Spock reaches under his shirt as if he's pulling out an object and pretends to mold it in his hands. So then Scotty jumps up from the floor saying, an explosive and everyone backs away. And you can see Norman kind of looking around at everybody. Kirk says, is that too much? Spock says, I believe it is the correct amount. Spock prepares to throw the explosive to mud who crouches down like a catcher. Spock imitates throwing a ball and Mud pantomimes catching it. Mud puts the imaginary object on the ground then pretends to be preparing it for detonation. And uh, he stands up and Norman says, there is no explosive. Kirk says, want to bet? Mud acts all of a sudden like he's hitting a golf ball and he swings and all the guys yell, four. Then they act as if there's a terrible explosion has just happened. So golf is a sport in the 23rd century. Yeah, golf will never go away. Yeah, it's not a real sport, but I mean, any sport where you can play it and drink at the same time, come on, not real. Bowling, same way. And Kirk asks Norman if he's all right. Norman seems confused and says, there was no explosion. Mud says, I lied. Kirk says, every 
everything Harry tells you is a lie. Then Mud says, I am lying. Norman says, if everything you say is a lie, then you are telling the truth. Smoke starts coming off of his head and then Norman shuts down. And a moment later, Spock reports that all the androids have been immobilized. Now, Dana, this is the fourth time we've seen Kirk talk some computer to death, right? Yeah. The man's got away with machines. So next thing we see is everyone's gathered, ready to leave. McCoy says to Spock, you must be very unhappy. McCoy says, we found a world of minds that work just like yours. We poor, irrational humans whipped them in a fair fight. Now you'll find yourself among us, illogical humans. Spock says, which I find eminently satisfactory, doctor. For nowhere am I so desperately needed as among a shipload of illogical humans. So then Mud comes in, he's complaining, and he says, what's all this about that I have to stay here? Spock says the androids are being reprogrammed for productive use. Mud complains, saying he's no scientist, and Kirk says, no, you're an irritant. <laughs> I love that. He says, you'll provide an example to the androids of a human failure. Mud asks, how long? And Kirk says, as long as you continue to be an irritant. <laughs> <laughs> And Mud looks around the room at the women and decides eh, there could be worse fates. Kirk says, we programmed a special android assistant to help you with your every need and make sure your work with the androids is good and you do not exploit them. Just then Stella comes out yelling at him. You know, it's like, you've been drinking, you've been overeating, you've been doing this. And this time he says, shut up. And she doesn't stop. She just keeps going. <laughs> and then another one appears. And then another one. It's bad says 500 <laughs> and mud sees that and he is nearly frightened and kirk and the crew laugh and walk away dana you had something you wanted to share with us about this episode a theory i think that you have watching this and thinking about norman's conversation where he's talking about controlling humans to serve them and going out across the galaxy and doing this could this have been in some strange way the birth of the borg that is an interesting question what do you think the borg are controlled by one mind they have a hive mentality they are trying to control humanity couldn't this control idea have turned into assimilation? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good a good idea. Something would have had to happen to these androids to veer them off of a path of serving to domination. So maybe they encountered another race or something else happened to them. But yeah, I could totally see it. Well, look what happened to that uh, probe that they found and brought on the ship. It had run into another probe from another planet. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's an excellent theory. Dan, you have a story you want to share with us about this episode? Yeah, apparently the casting director had to find sets of identical twins for this episode, right? We had quite a few identical twins, especially at the end. The story goes that the casting director who was in charge of this was walking down Hollywood Boulevard one day and he sees these identical twins, these two women, and they were apparently prostitutes and they're walking with their pet wild cat. So he talks to them and he says, hey, you know, I'm a casting director. We're looking for identical twins to be in the show Star Trek and he calls them in to meet with one of the other producers. So they come in and they bring their wild cat with them. The other producer has to hold the wild cat while they're doing some kind of audition and the wild cat just tears the crap out of this shirt and he scratches the producer. I mean, at least that's what he told his wife, right? Hey, yeah, we were interviewing <laughs> these two, you know, prostitutes that were going to be twins on the 
show, but their cat scratched me all up. Really, that's really what happened. But anyway, I guess they decided not to hire, not to hire. After all that, they decided not to hire these two. The cat's name was Marlin, by the way. Yeah, one of the things I read said it was a pet bobcat. One more little aside. Apparently, NBC, after this episode, had considered doing a spinoff series featuring Mud, and they asked Gene Roddenberry to kind of come up with a concept, but he was just too busy and it never got written, which I think is too bad. It could have been pretty funny. Dana, what did you have as dilemmas or themes for this episode? Are humans really so bad that we need someone or something to control us? Are we more Kirk? Are we more mud? Dan, do you have any themes or dilemmas for us from this episode? Yeah, I'd say it's kind of a tangential one, but this idea of androids, and we've seen androids in many different forms in the in the first and second season of Star Trek, but we're really starting to see this has become reality. You know, the whole Boston dynamics that started out with more of a robot-looking dog now they've got this robot that is bipedal. And I don't know if you saw that video from a couple months ago. It's doing almost like this parkour kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Amazing, right? Yeah. And then Tesla has said they're coming out with the robot called Optimus. I don't think we're that far off, Dana, from having not necessarily robots that look exactly human, but robots that can do human things better than humans. Yeah, I think we mentioned this before, but there's a uh, hotel in Japan, I believe it is, that has a uh, robot, android, whatever you want to call it, at the front desk, which uh, greets people, assigns their rooms even. Yeah. I saw the video of it when they first announced it. When you first see her from a, you know, 10 feet away or so, you're like, she looks real. But when you get up and she talks or responds to you, it doesn't look real. But close, right? I mean, we're, we're close, Dana. Yeah. That's just, I mean, the fact that we're even doing that. Yeah. Dana, what's one of your best parts from this episode? The humor, Dan. I think they did a good job it's a very light episode and I think they pulled off a lot of good humor in here. How about you? Definitely Harry Mudd. I talked about this in the first episode that we saw Mudd in. I just love the character. I think it's funny, you know, devious, yet still kind of somewhat dim-witted. I really do think it would have been great to see a spin-off or maybe even a full-length film where he was the foil for the Enterprise crew. Dana, how about another best part for you? I loved it when the androids turned against Mudd and uh, he's going around, you know, like, oh, come on. You know, it's like he's just sort of saying, hey, baby, you know, and do this for me or whatever. And, and they all say, no, Lord Mud. Do you got another good or best part, Dan? I thought Chekhov and some of the lines he had in this episode were once again brilliant. He is made to be kind of the comic of the Enterprise so far. How about one of the worst parts for you? It seems like any Tom, Dick, or Norman can take over the Enterprise. <laughs> It just seems so simple to do. I mean, get past auxiliary control and... Right. Flip some switches, turn some knobs, pretend like you're doing this and that, and <laughs> there you go. I want to start keeping track of how many times the Enterprise gets taken over. So I think that we need to add that to our accounts. Dan, do you have a worst part for us? I do. Playing up that the female androids are, quote, programmed to function in every way as human females when they're talking with Chekhov. Again, women are written in a very one-dimensional way in the series generally, and this episode is just a prime example of it. How about another worst part for you? Well, I was going to talk about the rampant sexism, but since you mentioned that, the other one I have is Spock joining in on the charade of killing Scotty. Just seems out of character for him to be making the uh, phaser sound and pointing a finger at him. I would think Spock would find that all illogical and would have a hard time doing that. <laughs> Dana, what 
fascinating and wonderful things happen on this day in history. Well, uh, let's start off with music. Oh, good. I like the music, yeah. The number one song in the U.S. is still To Sir With Love by Lulu. And you'll be happy to hear that in the U.K., the number one song was Baby Now That I've Found You by The Foundations. Also, uh, Gary Trudeau, a 19-year-old sophomore at Yale University, began his career of publishing political commentary in cartoon form with an editorial cartoon in the college newspaper, the Yale Daily News. While in college, Trudeau would later create a comic strip, which after his graduation in 1970, became the syndicated Doonesbury. Wow. I didn't know it was around that long. That's amazing. I used to read a lot of Doonesbury. I used to like Doonesbury quite a bit. Not a whole lot else going on, but I did find that on November 5th, ATS-3, the third of the applications technology satellite geostationary weather and communication relays, was launched into orbit from Cape Kennedy at 6.37 p.m. It was the first satellite with the capability of sending back full color images of the Earth. Designed to function for three years, ATS-3 would continue transmitting images until its deactivation on December 1st, 1978. So it went on for 11 years. Wow, that is pretty amazing. All right, should we do the counts? Yeah. Dan, how about the dead crewman count? Yeah, zero this week. So we're stuck at 36. The shirtless Kirk rip shirt Kirk count? Once again, zero. So, Dan, that leaves us with 10. How about the he's dead count? Well, Scotty is not really dead, but McCoy says he's dead. So, I don't I think we should count it. What do you think? I think so, too. I counted it in my list. Oh, good. Okay. So, that's eight. How about I'm a doctor, not a fill-in-the-blank? Yeah, so we had zero this week, Dana. We're stuck at six. How about the supreme being count? Yeah, I don't think the androids count as supreme beings. Who knows? Maybe their makers did. We just don't know anything about them, really. So I, I would say zero. I would agree. So we're stuck at eight. Violation of the prime directive? Yeah, again, I don't think so. I mean, they do change the society, but they're not humanoid. They're androids. So I, I think it's zero. I agree. So we're stuck at five. <laughs> So Dana, tell us what's up for next week. Well, Dan, I'm on vacation next week, so we'll have one of our best ofs, but the following week we'll be presenting... Metamorphosis. Well, Dana, have a great time in Florida next week. Hopefully the weather will be nice and you have fun. Yeah, just when the weather's warming up here nicely, I'm going to go where it's even hotter. Get to see some family and uh, some relaxation, so I'm looking forward to it. Well, you have a good one, Dan, and until we meet again, live long and prosper. And don't be an oddball. Thanks once again for listening to Damn It Jim, the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at dammitjimpodcast at gmail.com or join the discussion on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. Next week, it's an encore episode of Space Seed. In two weeks, join us for the new episode, Metamorphosis. Enjoy the rest of your week. And until then, live long and prosper. Prosper.